Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm looking at Luke, the 20th chapter in my Bible. And I will invite you to be finding a Bible and turning it to Luke chapter 20 as well. I'm going to read a kind of a familiar account in the life of Jesus that's going to set up what we want to talk about for these next few minutes from the Word of God. So let's all be looking at Luke chapter 20, and we'll begin there momentarily. It is great to see everybody this morning. We've got just a good number and got just a number of folks who are visiting with us, and we appreciate so much your presence with us today. You encourage us and you honor us by being here with us today, and we pray that all that we're doing is, number one, that it's pleasing in the eyes of God, Uh, and if it is pleasing in the eyes of God, we hope that it is encouraging to everyone that is here. We're just trying to help each other to navigate from here to heaven. Read with me, please, in Luke, the 20th chapter, for this special installment of Q&A today, because for the first time, Q&A makes an appearance in the Sunday morning worship hour and in the Sunday evening worship hour. You'll see why in just a moment. In Luke 20, beginning in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests, they sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that He had told a parable against them, but they feared the people. Verse 20, So they watched Him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Verse 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now that, that's a tough question. That's a loaded question. That is in many ways a no-win question. Think about it. If Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, then Caesar's bunch, the Romans, they're going to be breathing down his neck. They might throw him in jail. And then on the other hand, if Jesus says, oh yeah, you ought to pay your taxes, you should do that, that's a great thing to do, then his popularity with the Jews and his popularity with the multitudes is probably going to start falling substantially. And it is for those reasons that I think this is a no-win Question. You should know, though, Jesus handles it masterfully. In the verses that follow, verses 23 through verse 26, Jesus asks for a coin. Then He asks, whose inscription, whose likeness is on that coin? All of that then leads to that famous line about render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Verse 26 goes on to say that the result of all of that, the result of Jesus' answer is that the people marveled at His answer. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not nearly as smooth as Jesus is. I've been cornered a time or two with one of those kinds of no-win questions. And I'll be honest, I've not always handled that the best. I've not always been prepared to deal with that in the best possible way. And I suspect that many of you, you have stories of different no-win scenarios that you've been put in. And in fact, this morning, I'm thinking of a specific question, a specific no-win question, that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you have been a part of the Lord's people for any duration of time, you've been asked this question. See if it sounds familiar to you. Why does the church of Christ think they're the only ones going to heaven? You ever been asked that before? Maybe it's not even asked in the form of a question. Maybe it's just told to you. You, Church of Christ folks, you think you're the only ones going to heaven. Usually when it's asked and usually when it's spoken, it's not spoken in a friendly sort of way. Usually it's more of an accusation. 
People get angry. People get upset. What's the matter with you, Church of Christ people? What in the world makes you think that you're the only ones going to heaven? Sometimes it's posed to us in kind of a condescending sort of way. You really think you're the only ones going to heaven? Bless your little heart. I bet you believe that the earth is flat and that Elvis is still alive, don't you? Somebody help these people out. I've even heard jokes along those lines. Maybe you've heard this one before about how Peter, Peter was giving someone a tour of heaven, a new entrant into heaven, and he's walking this person around heaven, showing them different things. Here's the tree of life, here's the river of life, and here's the angels, and here's all the different people in heaven. And then they started to walk by this building, and the person said, well, hey, who's in that building? And Peter said, shh. He said, why do we need to be quiet? And Peter says, Well, because the Church of Christ folks are in that building and they think they're the only ones here. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, that's so funny. That's a great joke. As soon as you let somebody know that you are a member of a Church of Christ, very quickly they're going to ask, Hey, aren't you all the ones who think you're the only ones going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell? And whether that question is asked in anger whether it's asked condescendingly, or even if it's asked in all sincerity, I do think that it is kind of a no-win question. Because no matter how you go about giving that answer, there's always the possibility that you could be misunderstood, the possibility it could be taken in the wrong way, and more harm is going to end up being done than good. Which begs the question of us this morning, well, how do we respond to that question? What should we say? What should we do whenever we are confronted with that accusation and with that charge? Do we say yes to that question? And then perpetrate all kinds of stereotypes and misinformation? Do we say no to that question and then potentially leave the impression that, well, there's just multiple ways to get to heaven? How do we respond to that loaded question? Well, this morning I'm going to attempt to present the first of two lessons today on this subject. And I'm going to begin that here in the morning hour by just talking about some general principles that we need to keep in mind whenever we do confront that question. Just some things concerning our attitude, some things as we think about our approach toward the question, some things to think about from an outsider's perspective, all of which I hope will come together to help us to deal with this question in a Christ-like Manner. I may not be able to answer hard questions with the kind of seamlessness and perfection that Jesus did, but I'll tell you this, I sure don't want to answer questions like this in such a way that causes more prejudice and more confusion and just pushes people further away from the kingdom of God. And so what are some biblical ideas, some biblical principles that wherever we're asked this question about the church of Christ thinking they're the only ones going to heaven... What are some things that will be helpful for us in that regard? Well, let's just start that by making sure that our own thinking, that our own heart and that our own mind is in the right place, that it is in line and in tune with what the Scriptures teach. Namely, we need to start by understanding that there is no such thing as institutional salvation. Do you understand what I mean by that, that expression there? That there is no idea of a group plan for being saved. This is fundamental to our personal understanding. This is fundamental to everything the New Testament teaches. And this is fundamental to anything that we then might say to somebody else, especially to someone who is confused, 
Someone who believes that what we think is that salvation is somehow, well, somehow it's born out. Somehow it's born out of this institution known as the church of Christ. As if somehow the church of Christ, whatever they may mean by that when they say that, that we're the ones who dispense salvation. That, hey, if you come here and you put your membership in here and you're a good standing member, you have good attendance and you give a lot and you're involved in the work here, well, then you then qualify for the salvation package. That's what we offer to folks. No! 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 A thousand times no! Would you find Revelation 3, please? In Revelation chapter 3, here's a good illustration of this principle that I'm talking about. In Revelation chapter 3... Jesus sends some letters to various churches in Asia Minor in the first century. One of those letters goes to the church at Sardis, the Christians that made up the congregation in Sardis. Look at what he says to those folks. Revelation 3 verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Wow! What about that? That's a pretty scathing rebuke to the people in that church. But drop down and look at verse 4. Verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Do you see it there? Jesus says in that congregation, there are some folks doing wrong. But there's also some folks who are doing right. And I know who is who. Salvation is an individual matter. And just being in the right church, that doesn't guarantee you anything. And we see Jesus struggling with that idea all throughout the Gospels. You just follow Jesus through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and you'll see Jesus encountering people who thought that just because I'm Jewish, that everything is right with me and the Lord. That just because I am a descendant of Abraham, just because I go to Jerusalem to the temple to worship and I offer to God the, the worship of the Old Testament law, that hey, everything's great with me and God, I am saved. And we look at that and we realize, man, there's just some real problems with that kind of thinking. But you know what? If we're being honest, sometimes we get to thinking that way. It's saying things like, well, you know, I was raised in the church. I've been around this my whole life. My mama and my daddy and my grandma and my grandpappy, they were good Church of Christ members. As if somehow our lifelong affiliation with a local church of Christ somehow guarantees our salvation. It does not. Salvation is not the result of being in a religious organization. It is the result of a person being in Christ. That is where we want to put the focus. We start engaging this question. That's exactly where we need to take things. How does an individual get in Christ? Christ, because there's no denying. I don't think anybody's going to deny that that is who's going to heaven. It's the people who are in Christ. How do you get in Christ? Which probably provides us a nice place to include this second principle. And that is that as we are engaging this question, we cannot, we must not allow ourselves to be thrust up into God's chair. I am not the judge. You are not the judge. God is the judge. And I think we understand that. We get that and we try to press that. But you know what? When you start engaging this question about the only ones going to heaven stuff, folks are going to try to push you up into God's chair. 
They're going to try to coax you and manipulate you to go crawling up into the chair of the Lord and start making some calls. Start making some decisions about who's saved and about who's lost. And that, that is not for us to do. Jesus tells us in John the 12th chapter, would you find John 12? In John 12, Jesus tells us about the standard of judgment. And that's what we just want to echo. We want to echo what Jesus says about stuff. In John chapter 12, this is verse 48. Jesus says, John 12, 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see it there? We tell people the good news of Jesus. We tell people about the mighty deeds that Jesus did. We tell people about the wonderful words that Jesus spoke. But it is not our job to go sitting in the place of the Lord and start dispensing judgment. Well, these people are going to heaven. And these people, now those people, they're not going to heaven. That's not for us to decide. He does the judging, not us. And quite frankly, whenever we start in this conversation with folks, it's probably going to be a good practice for us to just get in the habit of making that a regular part of our vocabulary. Just start by saying that every time we get into that conversation. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. I'm content to let the Lord do that job. Which leads quite nicely into this third important principle. And that is, when we do that talking, we need to be very careful not to say things that's going to damage the cause of Christ and damage the kingdom of God. If you ever read stories about the first doctors that went down into the Amazon jungles, uh, you will find out that there was initially, there was a lot of resistance to the medicine and to the treatment that they were trying to do. And that's because the instruments that they were bringing to do that treatment and the tactics that they were doing to do all of that, it was so foreign, it was so frightening to the native people there. Just think about the first time that you got a shot. When the doctor pulled out that big long needle... Did it look like somebody was about to help you get better? No. It looked like it was going to have the opposite effect. This person's going to hurt me. And so the doctors in the Amazon force, they had to proceed very, very carefully or else everybody was just going to push away all that they were trying to do and anything that anybody else might try to do to help them. People wouldn't want any of that unless they proceeded with great care and great caution. We need to think about that. When we approach that question, we need to tread very carefully. Look in Colossians 4, please. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul reminds Christians that we do need to speak carefully, particularly with outsiders. In Colossians 4, this is verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You've probably met before, and I've met people before, who have been damaged by someone, by a Christian, someone who was a part, a member of a local church of Christ. And that person, when they talked to that individual, that Christian, was harsh, and they were abrasive, and they were just rather careless and flippant in how they spoke what they understood to be the truth of God's Word. They said things that maybe fed in to that false idea of institutional salvation. And as well as you listen to them talk, they seemed to almost sound pretty comfortable kind of crawling up into God's chair and start administering some judgment to different kinds of folks. And on top of all of that, their words were not seasoned with grace. 
And as a result, that person was pushed away from the kingdom instead of being drawn closer to the kingdom. Folks, let me tell you, that can not happen. It must not happen. And I want to just say to you this morning, if you are a person who struggles with being rather loose-lipped, if you have difficulty with expressing things in a tactful way, if you're one of those people that's just, well, I just kind of call it like I see it, then I am begging you that when you get confronted with this question, do not open your mouth. Please, just walk away. Defer that question to somebody else who can handle it in a graceful and tactful manner. Why? Because this is too important. People's souls are too important. The kingdom of God is too important for it to be damaged by a careless word. And that is especially important because of this fourth principle. Whenever people ask, why do the Church of Christ folks think they're the only ones going to heaven? We need to recognize that that question, that statement, that it is born out of ignorance. That is where that question comes from. How do most people, how do most Americans conceive of salvation? How do most folks conceive of of church? Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that this is pretty representative of what most people think about when they think about church. Church is this big giant circle, if you will, and it is composed of all of these different kinds, these different flavors of religious groups. And once you get all of these religious groups, and I just put nine or ten up there, once you put all of them together in aggregate, they all then come together and they make up the church. And the belief is is that salvation is, well, there it is. It's, it's in the church. And so as long as you're a part of one of those groups, you just kind of take your pick amongst them, well then, well then you're good to go. Where do most think, folks think that the church of Christ fits into that equation? Well, they think we just fit right there amongst all the rest of them. That's right. That we're just we're just another option. We're just another flavor. We're just another variety. We're just another group that's a part of that bigger idea of the church. Because in the denominational mindset, there are many roads that lead to heaven. You hear that kind of thing. You just join the church of your choice. It doesn't really matter. Just take your pick, whatever you like best. All these churches, they all achieve the same basic purpose. They all arrive at the same fundamental destination. All of these churches are part of the church, and they'll all get you saved. I hope that that's pretty fair in saying that that is what most people envision. And that all stems from where? It stems from a failure to understand how Jesus' church really operates. Would you look in Matthew 16, please? In Matthew 16, you know the verse I'm going to. In Matthew 16, after Jesus hears Peter make the good confession, He then responds to that in the following way. In Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is unfortunate that many people do not understand what Jesus is talking about here. That He's not talking about some giant denominational structure, some kind of an org chart, a pyramid with things all kind of going this way and that way. That's not what Jesus has in view. 
Jesus is not talking about some kind of arrangement where all of these different pieces, these different religious groups, they kind of come together like a big giant transformer and they all then come together to form the church. No. What Jesus envisioned was an individual relationship where individuals are saved by His blood. That's point number one. And they are then added to His body, the body of Christ, the universal collection of people of all time, of every place who are saved. And that is, that is the church. That is His church. It is the church belonging to Christ. In fact, if we want to get real fancy, we might actually say it is the church of Christ. And people today are largely ignorant of that. They have this idea of this in their minds. And they have no concept that that is found nowhere in Scripture whatsoever. Which is why when we come along and we say things like, Hey, don't you know, there's just one church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there's one body. What people think when we say those kinds of things is they think we are exalting our group. They think, oh, well, you're all you little black group there. You just make it seem like your all's is the best. That's what it sounds like to me. You all are saying that you all are the greatest. You all are just the bestest of all of the different groups. And it just, it doesn't connect. And that's because they don't understand what the church is all about. That Jesus just simply came to save men and women. And certainly, yes, those men and women that are in a specific local area, they are going to congregate and clump together and they're going to form local congregations of His people. But I'll say again, salvation is not in the congregation. Salvation is found in Jesus. People by and large today aren't getting that. And when people aren't getting that, people are going to get angry. People are going to be defensive. They're going to get upset about that. And that anger is going to burn especially hot in the climate and in the day in which we live today. Because in our society, the very worst sin of all is what? The worst sin of our time is intolerance. And you all down there in the church of Christ, you all are super intolerant. How can you go around saying or thinking that yours is the only way? That's so rigid. That's so narrow-minded. A recent survey found that a full 50% of evangelicals and Evangelicals are usually pretty conservative religiously. But a full 50% of the folks who were polled said, God accepts the worship of all religions. Ah, oh, there you go. That's tolerant, is it? God just accepts, just accepts all these different religious beliefs and practices and worship types. While you and I are over here saying just the opposite of that, we're over here saying that God does not accept the worship of all religious groups. You read Matthew chapter 7, 21, 22, and 23 for proof of that. The world, at the other hand, they're over here saying, Hey, Church of Christ folks, you need to get with the times. You need to stop being so restrictive. Stop being so narrow in how you think. And we need to recognize that. We just simply need to be understanding. We need to be not be naive and we need to be aware of that. You know, God's people, we have always been swimming upstream. But maybe now more than ever, in this day and in this age of hypersensitive political correctness, the idea of just accepting everybody in every single thing, maybe now more than ever, we need to recognize the challenge of the times in which we live. I am certainly not suggesting that we need to water down the gospel. 
I am definitely not suggesting that we need to make the gospel more accommodative to folks by, by shaving it here or there. I'm just simply saying we need to realize that when folks throw out the question about you're the only ones going to heaven, we better be ready to engage with the tolerance police. And we better know how we're going to react to that. Which means, sixthly, that it is critical, it is critical that we realize that persuasion is not just about dispensing more and more and more information. I, I don't I don't know about everybody else, but maybe this is just a problem for preachers. When somebody hits me with the why does the Church of Christ think they're the only ones going to heaven question, my inclination is to just start drowning them, smothering them with biblical information. I'm just going to start pouring it on them. John 14 verse 6. I'm going to give them a side order of that Matthew 7 passage. I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of this verse and I'm going to give them a little bit of this passage. I'm just going to do this big giant data dump and I'm going to put all of this information in their head and that will settle it once and for all. Can I show you something in the book of Job? Look in Job 16. Go to your Old Testament. In Job chapter 16, Job, you'll remember, was wrestling with a pretty tough question of his own. It was the question of suffering. It was the question of why. Well, Job had three friends who came to him. And they thought that the best thing for Job in that circumstance to help him navigate through all of that was what we need to do is we need to preach it, Job. And we need to just pile on all the information that we can think of to help him answer that question. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 11, and chapter 15... All of those chapters, Job's three friends just keep pouring it on and pouring it on until finally, Job says this, Job 16 verse 2, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? One translation renders it this way, Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? And I do think that's what Job is asking there. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they did a lot of talking. They did a lot of informing. But they weren't actually doing very much persuading. And I wonder if you and I are ever guilty of that very thing. Sometimes what we need to do whenever we're addressing such a loaded question as that, is we need to offer just just a few key ideas. Just a few simple passages. And then what we need to do is we need to just step back. And we need to allow God's Word to just just breathe a little bit. Allow that to sink in. People need to think about that. People need to digest that. Especially when you're talking to somebody who has maybe a lifelong warped idea of how church and salvation and all of that works. Maybe they've had that drilled into their minds for years and years, maybe even decades. We need to take it easy on the gospel gun. We pull that gospel gun out and we're ready to start pulling the trigger and start plugging, folks. Let's put it back in the holster a little bit. Let's allow God's Word to do what God's Word can do. In fact, instead of just launching into a big biblical tirade whenever somebody asks that question, maybe what we ought to do, maybe where we need to start, maybe we need to start by issuing an apology. Somebody says, what? Apologize? Yes. I actually think that a heartfelt apology might be the very best way to just break the ice. To just say to someone, you know what? I am so sorry that you've heard those things about the church of Christ. 
I'm so sorry that your encounters, maybe in the past, with members of Christ church, that maybe that's left you with that kind of sour taste in your mouth and that kind of impression. Sometimes the very best thing we can do, instead of being super defensive, instead of just pounding away at people with the Bible, is to realize that this is all coming from somebody who doesn't understand what they're talking about. They don't understand what the Bible teaches. Someone who has just been smacked around by the Word of God, by somebody who is insensitive and who's not being very graceful. And now all they can see when they think about the church of Christ in their mind is arrogance and pride and haughtiness. What's the solution to that? See what the wise man says, Proverbs 15 verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. Maybe what we want to begin is we want to begin with a little bit of that softness. Just say, I'm sorry that you've heard those kinds of things about the church of Christ. You know, sometimes we just don't explain ourselves very well. Or you know what, I'm sorry that you've been told or you've been led to believe that we think we're better or greater than anybody else. That's not true. And I would covet the opportunity to show you why that's not true. And if you just track Paul throughout the book of Acts... There are a number of times where Paul is brought before councils and groups of people and he has to give a defense for himself. And lots of times Paul will start those defenses by just saying, hey, I know you've heard some things about these Christ followers. I know you've heard some things about these Christians, these Nazarenes. But I want to tell you how things really are. That, that can be a powerful beginning, a powerful launching off point. To just say, I'm sorry that you've been told this. i got to tell you, I think it's hard to stay angry at somebody when they're being gentle and even when they're being apologetic. But you know what? Even as I say that maybe we want to start with an apology, sometimes we're going to need to do something different. Sometimes when we're confronted with this question about Church of Christ, only one's going to heaven, sometimes what we need to do is we actually just need to bail. And we need to just abort the conversation altogether. Have you ever had the experience of wearing a, a t-shirt or some other kind of apparel of your favorite sports team. And maybe you go into a hostile territory, say for example, you're a Kentucky Wildcats fan, and you go into hostile territory like the city of Louisville, like downtown Louisville. If you've ever had that situation before, then you know the kind of hostility that sometimes that brings out of people. A few years ago, I was in a gospel meeting in Louisville, and I had a little bit of time uh, one afternoon... And I went down to a Waffle House and I went wearing my UK t-shirt. And when I walked in the door, I walked by an entire table full. There was like four guys in there, all dressed in red, dressed in their Louisville apparel. They were Louisville fans. And I kid you not, when I walked in and walked by them, they started hissing at me. They started cursing at me. They started just saying, we hate the Wildcats. Kentucky stinks. Get out of here. Go back to where you come from. Let me ask you, in that moment, what can I say over the course of the next 30 seconds or 60 seconds that's going to cause them to change their mind and to say, oh, well, thanks for setting the record straight, friend. Now I totally understand. Yes, UK is wonderful. The Wildcats are amazing. Thank you so much for telling me that. No! There's nothing I'm going to be able to say in the heat of that moment when somebody's just taking a jab, when somebody's just trying to pick a fight. And when it comes to this question about why do the Church of Christ folks think they're the only ones going to heaven, sometimes folks ask that 
And they're not asking it because they really want to know the answer. They're not asking that because they want some information. They want you to share some Bible verses. Folks are not always asking that because they have a sincere desire to study the Word and they're seeking after truth. No. Sometimes folks are saying that simply as a put-down. They're just trying to pick a fight. Are you still here in the Old Testament? Look in Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 29, what we need is we need to use some wisdom in these situations. And each situation is going to be different. But Proverbs 29 gives this pearl of wisdom. In Proverbs 29 and in verse 9, the wise man says, If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. I've been in Proverbs 29 verse 9. Have you? And all of my brilliant argumentation the tons of Scripture that I supplied, all of the patience that I exercised, and what was the result? The fool just raged on. The fool just enjoyed stirring that pot, poking the bear. I, I'm out at that point. I'm done. I'm not continuing in that. I'm not going to argue with someone who is not looking to learn or who is not looking to talk constructively. You know, somehow we have decided in evangelism that we just need to have the last word in every evangelistic conversation. But what I'm saying is that right there, that's not an evangelistic conversation. Jesus didn't answer every question when it came from insincere hearts, and we don't have to either. But if on the other hand we are talking to somebody who has a sincere heart, somebody who really is interested, and they really do want to know, hey, where are you coming from? Then what we need to do is we need to see if we can just get a little more time. If someone is genuinely intrigued, they're genuinely interested in what we're doing and what we're all about, they are seeking and maybe their curiosity has been piqued because all that they've heard is about Church of Christ. They just think they're the only ones going to heaven. And they've got this question and they're looking for an answer for it. What should we do then? We should take our time in providing that answer. If you think that you can just bang out the answer to that question in a 30-second conversation in an elevator, or that you can just bang out the answer to that question in a five-minute conversation in the break room, or that you can bang out the answer to that question in a 140-character tweet on Twitter, you are sadly mistaken. Can I show you a very helpful verse? It's a helpful verse for me. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. I noticed this in our Corinthian study on Wednesday night recently. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're familiar with this chapter because it sets forth so many important things about the Lord's Supper. But there's a little note at the end of this chapter where Paul just, he needs a place to say this and he just says it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verse 34. As he's wrapping up the Lord's Supper talk, he says, If anybody's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Notice the last statement there. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. You see what Paul's saying there? Paul's saying, I just can't cover everything right now. Not everything can be stated in this one little letter. In fact, the letter is getting kind of long as it is. There are some other things that need to come first, that need to be addressed first, and I'll get around to those other matters when we get time. For you and I to be able to work through all of the misinformation and all of the ignorance that goes along with this charge, 
it will take time. It'll take time to sit down with an open Bible. It'll take time to find ourselves in an undistracted environment. When you're in the workplace or when you're standing in the checkout line at, at Kroger and somebody brings that question up, that's just not the best time. That's just not the best place to deal with that. We need to be able to sit down somewhere where we can talk candidly and we can talk carefully. It may even take a series of conversations, a series of stutters, of studies, but I'm going to suggest to you that that's okay. You don't have to get the entire truth of the gospel all out in one setting. This question is going to require that we define some terms, that we do that in a clear fashion. It's going to require a complete deconstruction of denominational thinking. Then it's going to require a construction of what the Bible does teach about salvation and about the Lord's church. And all of that, it takes time. And this evening, Lord willing... We will take the time to try and break all of that down as we further develop our response to this no-win question. As I said at the outset of the lesson, I really wish that I could handle questions like this with the finesse that Jesus did. Man, I love reading and just studying about Jesus. We're studying in the Gospel of Mark in the young people's class. and I'm just impressed with Jesus and how He's able to handle these situations just perfectly. I am certain that if Jesus was asked that question about the only ones going to heaven thing, I think He would leave all of us just in awe. We would marvel, we would be amazed at how He addresses that. In fact, just imagine, if Jesus could be asked that question, just personally, imagine Jesus was right here, and we're just going to personally ask Jesus, Jesus... Are only members of your church going to be saved? What's the answer? The answer is obvious. Where are you this morning? Are you in that church? Are you in Christ? Are you part of His body? Have your sins been forgiven by being buried with Him in the waters of baptism so that He can, in fact, add you to His Church, the saved people. All things are ready this morning for you to do just that. There's water, there's people, there's all kinds of things that have been made prepared and made convenient for you to obey the gospel this very hour. You can know the blessings and the joys of being in Christ and being saved. Can we help you to do that? Can we help your brother or sister to serve the Lord in a better way and be a better Christian? Whatever your need may be, you simply need to make that known by coming to the front. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.